you with our train to face the day. In your presence, all our fears are washed away, washed away.
touch the world But it couldn't fill me A man's empty praise And treasures that fade Are never enough You came along And put me back together
resurrection of Jesus, you can literally face death without fear. When you're a follower of Christ, you can deal with the most difficult of situations because we're talking about the one who can, who can turn seas into highways, the one who can turn bones into armies. That's from the Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah. You're the only one who can. He's the only one who defeated death itself. So I don't know what your situation is, what you're struggling with today. Uh, maybe you're sort of half in and half out as this band is singing so passionately this morning. But whatever your, whatever your, your challenge is, whatever your difficulty is, I want you to just take a few moments to, to pray with us and to be uh, kind of challenged and confronted with the reality that in Jesus you can face it. In Jesus, you can make it. You can face that wall. You can walk over that mountain. You can scale it, difficult as it may be. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have once again to worship you and to learn from you. And God, uh, we are so thankful for the basic truth that Jesus is alive today. And Lord, as we, as we deal with everything from the pandemic to social injustice, all of these things, and so much volatility in the air today, and, and God, so much, uh, uh, so much intensity no matter where people are at. God, we praise you that you are in control. We praise you, Lord, that you see it all, that you know it all. And, Lord, that you conquered even death itself. I pray for the one who's watching or the one who will watch. And, and Lord, they're facing a diagnosis from a doctor. They're looking into a dire financial situation. They're looking at a broken relationship. They're looking at a job loss. Whatever it may be, God, whatever challenge, we pray in the name of Jesus that the risen Savior would be real in people's lives today. There's nothing better than you, Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be more and more convinced of it and have faith and grow in that faith in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, guys, for leading us this morning and everybody who's on tech and Sean and Simon and Viano and Iggy. Boy, you guys did a great, great job. I hope I'm coming in okay. 
Uh, let me know, my technicians, if we lose the feed at all. We are broadcasting live from our Bible college right here in the city of Longay. We're so thankful that they've allowed us to do this uh, this morning. So welcome the 27th of September 2020. Thank you so much for joining in with us. Uh, right away, I would invite you, if you are watching live, either you're uh, on Facebook or you are on our website if you're on Facebook, press that share button or do what they call a watch party, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, now, when everything is online, it's you press share, right? And uh, you don't have to have a conversation with someone. You don't have to invite someone to church. You just press the share button. And when you do that, there's literally hundreds, thousands of people, whatever, who can be exposed to this. We're teaching uh, the Bible on this broadcast through this service, and we continue to reach the one who is far from God so that together we would become passionate followers of Jesus. So welcome and thank you so much for tuning in. If you are a first-time guest, as always, can you do me a favor and text the key phrase, reach the one, no spaces, to 514-900-0130, and that'll get you onto our mass uh, email and text list and give you access to some other goodies that you'll enjoy, and I'd be happy to send you a gift electronically in your email that you're really going to enjoy. So uh, please don't be shy and do that. You can check us out online at citypointchurch.ca. All of our messages are there. Uh, the video content is relatively new. We just started that at the pandemic. Uh, but all of the audio going back four years is all there, okay? So citypointchurch.ca slash connect slash sermons will get you there. Continue to pray for our global workers, our missionaries in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. We have the Charbonneaux working very hard over there, as I said last week. Lots of unrest in the city. There are gangs that have taken over the streets, and those gangs are largely protected by the new government that's there, and this has caused protests to happen. So there's a lot of unrest there, and that is not uncommon uh, for the nation of Haiti and the city of Port-au-Prince. So pray for them. Pray for the mans as well as they are preparing to head to, I think they have an itinerary where they're planning to hit 30 different countries uh, and they're coming up with uh, a content for leadership training um, for uh, leadership and leaders, Christian leaders all around the world. And uh, so pray for them, pray for Don as he continues uh, various challenges with his own health, uh, but they are getting ready to, to deploy as it were. Uh, remember, we are on a schedule where we're three weeks stream only and then one week uh, from Cineplex at Complex Distrante in Brassard with a full stream. Okay, so it's one and three, one and three. Uh, we will see when that lifts and when the restrictions become a little less tight. But our next meeting at Cineplex is going to be October the 18th at 10.15 in the morning. Thank you for your generosity. As always, you can continue to give the same way. Uh, electronically is the easiest and the best through uh, PayPal, through our website, or also you can use uh, e-transfer. All of the instructions are there. And the bills keep on coming, so thank you for your faithfulness, and that's the way it works, right? It's just like your house, so <laughs> uh, pandemic or not, the expenses are still there, okay? So we are in part five of Dear Churches. If, if Jesus himself were to say something to churches today in the 21st century, what would he say? 
And if you were to visit us right here, you know, we've just got a handful of people here. And uh, those of you who are watching and he were to speak to us and he were to address us and he were to say to, to me, get out of the way. I'm taking your microphone. What would he say? Would that be scary? Would that be encouraging? I don't know. Uh, but what I do know is that we have for us in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, uh, an address from Jesus to seven real churches that were really alive in the first century. And so we've been going through these little messages that Jesus has, and we are on part five today, okay? Remember, uh, as I keep saying over and over again in this series, Revelation is a very, very odd book. This is a fusion book. You've heard of a hybrid car. You know, it's half electric and half gas. Well, this book is a fusion. It's not even a hybrid. You've got three different types of, of literature going on here, and they're all mixed up. In the book of Revelation, you've got an apocalypse, which was this idea of unveiling the curtain to reveal something behind. Uh, but this came to mean literature about the end of the world, so it's an apocalypse for sure. It's prophecy because it claims to be talking about things to come. And it's also an epistle, and an epistle was a letter that was sent to churches. Uh, so this is very much that. And at the beginning, you see the real churches, and you'll see on the screen the map that I've been showing you. The churches are kind of like a delivery route. You can go in a circle, and you can, you can deliver a little letter to each one of these churches. And today we are in the city of Pergamum, okay? That's the third city uh, that is on the list. And Pergamum is an interesting study because we don't know much about it uh, when we look at the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us much about Pergamum at all. Uh, it's not mentioned uh, save for the book of Revelation. And so when we look at this passage, and we'll read it in a second, it's one of the strongest passages in the whole little section of this book of Revelation toward the churches. Um, but before we read the passage, which is quite graphic, I want to give you some background about this city because there's a lot in the rocks that we have found uh, that tell us about this city before we see what Jesus has to say about it in the first century. Okay, uh, Pergamum was known for a very large library of parchments. Uh, they say that there was 200,000 parchments there, which was uh, unparalleled in the ancient world at that location at that time. And uh, it also was very known for worship of the god of healing, Asclepius. I'll get into that in a second. And also for the worship of Caesar. They had three temples uh, to worship Caesar there. Not just one, but three and they're worshiping all kinds of other uh, uh, gods and goddesses as well in the Greco-Roman pantheon. So there's a lot cooking there. Let me read to you some background uh, from a guy who's written a book about the seven churches addressed in Revelation. His name is Rick Renner uh, about Pergamum. Uh, it was from Pergamum that all the rulings were made that affected the whole of Asia Minor. So very significant there. Uh, again, they were known for their parchment well-known for their arts. They had a theater. You can still see the ruins of it in Pergamum if you visit. A theater that could seat 10,000 people with a very, very high-angled arch. And you could still go and visit a large chunk of that theater, and they would pack that theater 10,000 people a night. And it was said that the acoustics were so good that you could hear a whisper on stage at the top of the back row. It's quite a sight 
If you just Google the city of Pergamum and look around at the city today and see the archaeological stuff and the rocks, and, and a lot of this is left over, and you can see it. Uh, they had an Acropolis there, and Acropolis was like a city square high up on a mountain, and that's common in the, in the ancient world, but their Acropolis was something really special. It was like the city of Athens, which was the most significant city, and they had, this, of course, this huge library, and the collection in the library, we're told, was so great that the Roman general Mark Antony presented it as a wedding gift to Cleopatra, okay? So at the end of the city, it's a thriving city. It's a bustling city, and uh, yet Jesus has some very strong condemnation for this city because it had a kind of a dark side to it uh, that was actually very well known. So they have not only the three temples that are put up toward uh, the Roman emperor, and there's debate as to whether or not John and the author, the author of Revelation, is writing under Nero's rule or he's writing under Domitian's rule. We're not sure, but both of those Caesars were very nasty to this new Christian movement. And Caesar worship was the way that it was. You worship Caesar as God and you worship nobody else. So there was very known for that. Imagine three temples. But also they had a temple for the goddess Athena. And they had at the top of the Acropolis the great altar of Zeus, who was the king of the Greek gods. And that altar has survived. Uh, it is magnificent. And it is in the city of Berlin in Germany has been there since 1930. You can Google and see how vast it is. And uh, it depicts the battle of the gods with the giants and so on. And they had this great altar of Zeus at the top of the Acropolis. And so um, you continue, and they, they worship this god uh, Asclepios, uh, who was symbolized by a snake. And this was a god of healing. And the city was, was sort of a cross between a hospital and a health spa when it came to Asclepios. And patients could go there. From, they'd go from around that part of the world, and they'd go for either like a mud bath or a major surgery. Uh, emperors came from Rome to be treated there. It was known for that. Uh, you were not allowed to go visit the Asclepion, which was sort of like this big hospital slash temple, you were not allowed to go in there if you were dying because they didn't want it known that anyone died in the Asclepion. So they took sick people, but not people who they thought would die. And there was actually a huge sign above the official entrance of the Asclepion that said, death is not permitted here. Uh, of course, in their language, okay? So what would happen, and it's really creepy, is the patients would go into this underground tunnel, and they would drink uh, like a sedative or a sort of a potion in their understanding, and then they would sleep there in these dormitories in the Asclepion, and you can still see them today. And it's, it sounds quite creepy, but what would happen was that these non-poisonous snakes would be there, and they would crawl on these people who were sleeping there. And the, the story goes that if these non-poisonous serpents crawled on you in the night, then the serpent god Asclepios, this god of healing, would speak to these people, these patients, in their dreams and give them a diagnosis. So it was like those serpents carried the healing power of the god. And then when the patient woke up, 
they would talk to the priests who ran that Asclepion, and they would tell their dreams to the priests. And the priests would say, okay, uh, you know, this is how you're going to be healed of this problem. And they would make this, the, whatever part of their body was ailing, they would sculpt it out of clay and they would present it to Asclepios as a, as a sort of a sacrifice. So it's really quite creepy uh, when you look at it. There's a lot to see when you think about the city of Pergamum. Um, again, just Google Pergamum and you'll see it. You can see that altar of Zeus. Uh, again, it's in a museum in the city of Berlin with a lot of other things um, uh, from the city of Pergamum. And you can see that long, long... Um, uh, seating area for the uh, uh, the arena that they had there that sat 10,000 people. It's quite the place. So here's what Jesus says to this city in the first century against that backdrop. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. Now, again, angel could have been messenger. We're not sure what the word, how it should be translated there. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. We see Jesus presented this way in Revelation chapter 1. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And the title of our message is, When the Devil Lives in Your Town. Well, he sure did there. And Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan that, that's, a, that's a word that means enemy, has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Wow, I mean, what a, what a graphic condemnation that is. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. So the church, the church uh, seemed to be facing this persecution. And yet, at the same time, there seems to be a problem in it in this, in this city where Jesus says uh, Satan has his throne. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, as I said last week, you have to dig into the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, from about Numbers 24, and you've got to read six or seven chapters and uh, because it's not clear until you get to chapter 31 and verse 16 that it was Balaam, the guy with the talking donkey, if you remember that story, um, who enticed the children of Israel to, to sin by eating this food that was sacrificed to idols and so on. It's quite a sordid story there in the book of Numbers. And he adds another example, and he says, Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We're not sure who they were or what they taught, but it was likely something similar to what Balaam taught. Uh, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and uh, and fight against them, presumably the them who were tolerated in this church. I will soon come and fight them with the sword of my mouth. And then this kind of cryptic statement that scholars have wrestled with what it what it may mean. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes 
I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So that's the statement from Jesus to this church. There's a few things uh, that we can learn about what to do when the devil lives in your town. And uh, by this I mean, and I think Jesus means the same thing here, when you are living in um, a culture, could be a subculture or broader culture, where the worldview, the religious view, the spirituality, everything is clearly opposed to the teachings of Christ, is, is clearly anti Christ. It's clearly opposed to it. It's, and here in the city of Pergamum, I mean, you had the worship of everything except the true God, it seems. And, and maybe this is why Jesus addresses them and says, this is where Satan lives, where he has his throne. Some say it's that altar to Zeus. Some say it's the Asclepion. Some say it's something else. But probably it has to do more with the fact that they had three temples to worship Caesar. Not one, not two, but three. And so they seem to be the dominant uh, uh, devotee to Caesar out of all of these churches uh, mentioned here in Revelation 2 and 3. They all worship Caesar, of course, but this one seems to have been quite passionate. Uh, what do you do when the devil lives in your town? I just want to give you a few observations here, okay? Um, number one, Notice, God and the devil here, if we go by this text, they exist at the same time. So that may, you may say, well, duh, uh, we can read. Well, just slow it down a little bit. So he says, this is Jesus speaking, and this is Jesus in his, in his glorified state. He, he is appearing here in Revelation as a judge. Um, he, he's appearing here in a very different way than we see him in the Gospels. I mean, he's got a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and his eyes are like blazing fire. These are images of judgment and strength and power. And yet he is saying, Jesus is saying, that the devil lives in this city. It's interesting and very important for us today because... We have, um, we have an argument today. Uh, it's the most common question. It's the most common objection about Christianity throughout the ages. It's always been this argument. Um, uh, Wednesday nights, we're doing the Alpha Course online, which answers some of the basic, basic questions about the Christian faith. And, and that's, that's come up to the top. It sort of floats on the top of the foam of all the questions that people have about whether or not Christianity could be true. The number one thing is, how could there be a God who's all-powerful, who's all-holy, who's all-good, and yet there be the existence of suffering and evil? If there's a good, all-powerful, all-present, all-loving God, then there shouldn't be the existence of evil and suffering. He should wipe it out. And so the, 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 uh, the argument is he therefore does not exist because you have evil and suffering in the world. Well, 
Interestingly enough, you look into Revelation chapter 2, and you have evil and suffering in this town at least, and it's Jesus who's addressing it front and center. Hmm. Could it be then that God and the devil exist at the same time? Without, without uh, you, you don't see the people in Revelation chapter 2 saying, well, God must not exist then. Because, you know, the, the suffering and, and persecution in our town, he's telling them, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. They're not saying, well, God, I guess you don't exist. But we do today. We have that argument. And it's kind of, it's kind of put us to sleep in some ways. Because if you're going to argue that, and there's probably those of you who are watching, and you're saying, well, that's my argument. That's my case against God. Uh, because I've had this happen to me. I've had this suffering happen to me. I've had this evil happen to me. I've had this injustice happen to me in my life. And therefore, I do not believe that God exists because if he's all good and all powerful and so on, why did this happen to me? And that's your argument. Okay, the burden of proof, if you're going to say that God doesn't exist because of the presence of evil and suffering, the burden of proof is on the person to disprove the existence of God. Uh, how do you know, friend, that, that God may not use that evil and that suffering for some greater purpose? How do you know that? How can you prove that he can't? How can you prove that he flat out doesn't exist because evil and suffering exist? You've got to find a way to say that, and the burden of proof is so high, I don't think that, that, it, can be, that it can be sustained. I mean, how can you say that God will never deal with evil and suffering? You don't know that. I mean, the Bible predicts that he most certainly will deal with evil and suffering. So how can we say, well, you know, we're going to throw God out the window because we've got evil and suffering? For that matter, never has it ever been an argument to say that God exists because of the circumstances that we have in life. That has never been an argument for the existence of God. The classic argument for the existence of God is creation, and something must have caused all of this. That's a causality argument. And there's a moral argument. We all seem to be endowed with this sense of morality and right and wrong. And where did that come from? Th those are the two main branches of the argument for the existence of God. It's never, well, you know, my life is good, and I worship this God, and therefore he must exist. <laughs> you know, that never really has been an argument for the existence of God. So just take note that here we have God and the devil existing at the exact same time, and you don't have the followers of God saying, well, you must not exist, okay? Number two, believing the devil's lies gives him a throne. Here we're told that Satan, and again, that's not a personal name. That's a title. It, it, it means enemy, has his throne there. He has a place of authority there. He lives there. He's quite comfortable there, in fact. This word throne, is he's, he rests there. It's his place. It's his town. And you have this, this, this church there and these Christians that live there. When I say church, I don't mean a building. They didn't have a synagogue or a temple that we know of anyway. Some say there was a synagogue there, but we can't find it. So you, but you did have a group of Christians there. That's the church. The community of believers was there. And yet the, the, the devil, the enemy, felt very much at home there. Um, how, why did he feel at home there? 
What was it that they were doing? And we can say, well, you know, uh, look, you've got the, you, you said so. You've got the throne to Zeus. You've got the temples to the Caesar. You've got the Asclepion, the creepy thing with the snakes that you talked about. Seems pretty obvious. Well, John, he, he gives a couple of illustrations here, and he goes deeper than that. Uh, and this is John writing uh, uh, the words of Jesus. And what does he say? He says, you've got the teaching of Balaam, obscure, relatively obscure Old Testament story who taught Balak, that's a, a Moabite king, to entice the Israelites. The word entice in the language of the New Testament is interesting. It's, um, uh, you transliterate it, scandalon. Uh, we get the word scandal from it. Uh, back then, the word scandalon didn't mean scandal. Okay, what it meant was uh, it was a trap. It was a little um, a bait stick uh, that you would, you, if you wanted to trap a bird, you would put a scandalon out. It was a little stick, and it was attached to a trap, and it baited the bird. And when the bird tripped that scandalon, the, the trap would come right over the bird, a bit like a mouse trap. Uh, the little cheese uh, is a bit like a, like a scandalon. And so there was an enticement, he's saying, a scandalon, where the, the Israelites, Old Testament story, were tricked into behaving in this way and, you know, eating food sacrificed to idols and this whole rather sordid sexual immorality scene there that we see in Numbers 24. So they're tricked. They, they believed lies, and they fell into this whole thing. And then we have these mysterious Nicolaitans uh, mentioned. We're not real sure about them. But what do we see when we talk about... Um, uh, the power of the supposed devil or the, the Satan, which, again, is a word that means enemy, in the Bible. I mean, for some people, it's hard enough to believe in God. And then you say, well, I read this text, and I'm expected to believe that there's a devil, right? Well, when you look at the pages of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it rather unapologetically affirms the existence of a devil, uh, right from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation 20, 21, 22, it's all over the place. The, it, according to the Bible, there is a literal, invisible, spiritual, malevolent being that is bent upon the destruction of humanity. Uh, the Bible affirms the existence of the spiritual world, very much so. But when the Bible talks about the devil... It does not talk about the devil in the way that we do uh, with some of the mythology that we've brought in and some of the cultural references and some of the movies and television and all this. Uh, it, it does not talk about the devil the same way. The, wa the way it does is, I think, much more practical. It's through the power of lies versus truth. And when people believe a narrative of lies, then this is what happens. The, the, according to the scripture, the, the devil becomes more and more entrenched in the mind of a person who believes his lies. So his power, at least according, again, to the, to the Bible in an overall sense, is through lies. Okay, it's, it's not through, you know, Ouija boards and all this kind of stuff, and I'm not denying the existence of that. Uh, I have seen that type of stuff as well. 
But for, for the most part, it's in the power of the lie. Not these confrontational, you know, exorcism moments, which, again, uh, I, I will affirm as real. But the power of the lie is where he gets entrenched. And there was an awful lot of lies that these people believed in the city of Pergamum. I mean, if you're going to go and sleep at the bottom of a temple of uh, Asclepius, you know, and let serpents crawl on you to heal you, you believe in some strange stuff, right? So, and the lies change people's behavior. When you believe lies about God, about yourself, your behavior starts to change. It changes when that narrative in your head I- is dictating the way that you live your life. And the, the Bible would teach that the enemy has access to that narrative in your head. And he wants you to believe his lies. The way that you can be faithful and not renounce your, your faith, as this church apparently was strong enough to do, is by truth. It's, and Jesus said this, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the truth in context was what he taught about himself. That is the truth that sets people free, that brings liberty to people. So I want to give you just a little, a little bit of basic truth that if you're, if you're believing these things, that's good. If you're not and you're off the mark on these things, It's not so good. And just in three areas about God, about Jesus, and about you, that's where the lies start. When you start believing false things about God, you start believing false things about Jesus, and especially you start believing false things about yourself. I'm amazed that in church circles and in the subculture of church, we spend a lot of time arguing about things that, while they may be important, they are not what I'll term salvific, okay? That's a a fancy theological term. They're not things that determine a person's salvation. Uh, They're secondary issues. They're important issues. But we seem to spend a whole lot of time, especially in church circles, debating these things when we probably should be spending more time learning the basic message of Christianity and making sure that we're grounded in it and we know what we believe and we know why we believe it. I mean, you may, you may be able to prove, my friend, that the, that the world was created in 624 literal days and, you know, and you've got, to, you've got all your arguments and you've got all your supposed science laid out on the table. You say, I can prove this and I've got the order of the the, the the end of the world all solved, and I can figure all this stuff out. That's all well and good. You can argue about that all you want, but those are secondary issues. If you don't have the basics about God, about Christ, and about you, you can argue about those other things all you want. Does God heal today? Does God not heal today? You can argue about it all you want. Those things are secondary things. They're not salvific. What is it that a person must believe? What truth must a person believe in order to be saved? 
Let's get to it. That is the question. We can argue about the rest. The rest of it you can play with if you want later. But the basics you have got to know about God. And you see this in the preaching of the New Testament, the book of Acts, the Gospels. God exists. You are not him. And there's only one of him. That's the basics. You've got to believe that God actually exists, and there's only one of him. There's not a million gods that you've got to worship. There's one, and he is the creator and the source of everything. He created everything. He's the origin. He's the cause of it. He, he exists in it. He exists outside of it. He is the uncaused cause. He is God. Do you have to understand all of the different attributes of God? Well, God is immutable. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is all these things. Those things are really, really important. But you start with the basics. God exists. You are not him. And he's the cause of everything. This is what you see in the preaching of Paul in the book of Acts. This is what you see in the preaching of Peter in the book of Acts. John in the book of Acts who wrote this book of Revelation. You start there. Because the people in that time of the world, there's polytheism all over over the place where they're worshiping all kinds of different gods, multiple gods for multiple things. If they want to get pregnant, they worship the god of fertility. If they want their crops to grow, they worship the god of the crops. And the presentation of God in the Bible is, no, there's one God. He created everything, and you are not him. If you've got that far, <laughs> that's, that's what you need to know about God, okay? That's the basic thing about God. When it comes to Jesus, you've got to know a little something about him as well. A few things, really. Number one, the virgin birth. Yes, you do need to know that. And when I say virgin birth, I'm not saying immaculate conception. Okay, people get confused with those terms. Immaculate conception has nothing to do with Jesus. It's a Roman Catholic idea about Mary and that Mary was somehow conceived sinless and all of this stuff, an idea that you won't find in the New Testament. No, the virgin birth teaches that Jesus was born to a virgin. His mother, Mary, at least at that time, was a virgin. And the reason why the Bible teaches this and affirms this is that we have God coming into the world as a baby in the person of Jesus. And therefore, he's got to come into the world in a completely different way than everybody else does. He has to come into the world in a way that he is unaffected by sin. We'll get to that in a moment when we talk about what you need to believe about yourself. But God comes into the world in the person of Jesus Christ in a very unnatural way, in a supernatural way through the virgin birth. Why? Because the second thing you need to know about Jesus is that he is God in the flesh. And he has to be God in the flesh. There's all kinds of ideas of, well, Jesus, you know, became God or he was God half the time or he wasn't God the other half of the time and all kinds of strange things. And you and I can become gods if we believe hard enough and all kinds of stuff like that. But the basic teaching about Jesus is that he is God. Why is that important? Well, because of the next thing that you need to know, and that is that he died for you on a cross. He paid a death penalty as a substitute for you. And he must be God on that cross 
Because if he has not gone on that cross, then his, his death is a meaningless death. Uh, the forgiveness of sins, which is promised, is a false promise. Um, he's just like you or me. He must be God on that cross, and therefore, the gift of forgiveness of sins is efficient for all of humanity. Why? Because you have God up there on that cross. You've got to believe that. And implied in that is that he rose from the dead, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in history where he rises from the dead. Why is that important? Because, again, it affirms his deity. If he's not God, then he's not risen from the dead. If he's not risen from the dead, then everything that we're believing is useless. Even Paul would say to the Corinthian church, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, we're liars, we're false witnesses. You're still in your sins. Your faith is useless. Those who have died in Christ, you'll never see them again. The whole message comes crumbling like a deck of cards or a house of cards. Pull the little card out if you do not have Jesus risen from the dead. This is what you must believe about him. And implied in that is that he's going to come again because he has to deal with the problem of injustice and evil and suffering once and for all. That's what you see uh, it promised in this book of Revelation if you read the whole thing. Th those are the basic truths that you need to believe about Jesus. All the other stuff, you'll, you'll, you'll learn it as you go, okay? And what do you need to believe about you? What is salvific? What leads to salvation that you believe about yourself? Well, we said a few things already. Number one, there's a God, you're not him. There's a Jesus, you're not him either. But number three... You and I, what are we? According to the Bible, we're, we're, I'll say the S word, we're sinners. We're sinners. And so am I. Uh, and what it means is, and what the Bible teaches is, while we're capable of great, great things and, and, and wonderful things, and we're created in the image of God, there is a bent that we have within us toward evil and towards transgressing the moral law of God. We have it inside of us, and we, we have like, it's like a pole of a magnet. We gravitate toward it over time. This is the sad story of humanity. You read the whole Old Testament, for example, and you're going to see story after story of a fallen humanity while capable of wonderful things like building a gorgeous temple to God also capable of things like adultery and murder and idolatry and slander and all of these things. And we see this over and over again, this sad story presented to us. We are not born, uh, at least according to what the culture would say, culture would say, we're born good and we become bad. We learn it. We learn to be racist. That's a, uh, a common thing. No, the Bible would say we have it inside. It's like a ticking time bomb that sprouts and grows and manifests itself over time. We're not born with a blank slate. That's good. We have this bent inside of us toward evil. And so the problem that we have is that we're incapable of saving ourselves. We create religion, 
all these rules and regulation, jump up and down ten times, you know, go visit the, the god of uh, Asclepius, go and sleep in the basement with some serpents, you know, we invent all this kind of religious stuff, go worship Zeus, go worship Caesar, things will go well for you, go worship the crop god, the fertility god, be nice to people, help people across the street, pay your taxes, be faithful to your wife, and when you die, maybe you'll go to heaven, you'll be okay. And we invent all these things, but all these things don't change us. They don't change our, our heart. They don't change the condition of humanity. What we need is God to come down and do it for us. We call this grace. This is what God did for us on the cross. That's the truth that you need to know to set you free. That's the basic story of Christianity, and we would do well, especially since the majority of the people who are probably watching this our church-going folks, we would do well to reinforce the basic truth into our hearts rather than arguing about all this secondary stuff if we don't have the basic stuff intact. And I have found over and over again that even churchgoers don't have the basic stuff intact. You know, the, again, the Alpha course that we're doing on Wednesday nights, here are all kinds of opinions. The setting in, in Alpha is really cool because we're allowing people to disagree. We're allowing people to say, well, I don't think that Jesus is this, and I don't think that Jesus is God, and I, I don't understand this, and I object to this, and we're allowing people to do that and hearing some of their doubts and their questions and sometimes trying to answer them, sometimes not, but I have found that if Christians, people who are Bible-believing people are trying to, church-going folk, they have the very, very same questions sometimes. Know the truth that sets you free if the devil lives in your town. And finally, stay faithful to the end. These people were in very, very dire circumstances. They are told, you've got the devil has a throne in your town, but you did not renounce your faith in me. When you, you're talking about imperial cult worship of Caesar, they must bow down and worship Caesar as deity or else. And they did not renounce their faith in spite of that kind of persecution. Even, we're told, in the days of Antipas, who Jesus calls his faithful witness. We get the word martyr from that word witness. Remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses. The same word. It means martyr. It means you'll have the stuff inside. You'll have the power inside to even face that kind of persecution, that kind of heat for your faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. Um, we have a story about Antipas and how he died. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's a tradition. It's not found in the Bible. I've struggled whether or not to, to read it to you today because it's quite graphic, and I probably won't read it, but you can look it up yourself online and see, you know, some of the stories about how this man died. This is a very brutal fashion. I'll just put it that way. And uh, he paid the price with his life because of his faith. He held it toward the end. And let me tell you, he wasn't holding toward the end. You know, I believe that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days. That's not what he's holding on to until the end. He's probably not even thinking about that uh, at that point in time. He's probably thinking, I'm holding fast to the truth that set me free. 
I'm holding fast to the idea that Jesus Christ is God, not Caesar, not Asclepius, not Zeus, not Athena. I'm holding that Jesus Christ is God. And if I lose my life as a result, so be it, because I'll be with him anyway if I lose my life. And this was the, this was the stick-to-itiveness, the perseverance that this Antipas had and that this church had. Although they tolerated some of this other garbage, they still had that stick-to-itiveness, and that's what you've got to have if you feel like the devil lives in your town. You know, maybe it's your place of work, and you say, you know, everybody is so, it's so absolutely ungodly in my work, in my school, in whatever your, your world is, your little subculture is. Well, you follow these things, okay? Remember, you've got to believe truth about yourself. Um, you've got to understand the basics about God, and you've got to be able to persevere and say, I'm going to hold it until the end. I'm going to believe these things until the end. Whatever struggle will come in my life, whatever loss may come in my life, whatever success may come in my life, I'm going to hold to these things until the end. That's what the church in Pergamum was doing and needed to continue to learn to do. I'd like the band, if they come up uh, and uh, just start playing at the end here, and you guys you close with whatever song you want. You did such a wonderful job uh, today. Thank you so much for, for coming out and doing this. And it's just, it's just so important and so freeing that, uh, that we could do this. But I want to just have a word of prayer uh, with the audience today. I'm looking into a, into a camera with a red light on. But, you know, there's going to be 100, 150 people who are going to end up watching this video. There's going to be others who are going to listen to it. We're on Apple Podcasts and Podbean as well. And I don't know your story. I don't know who I'm talking to in many cases. Some I do, some I don't. But for sure, for sure, uh, you have run into something that intersects with what this church uh, was experiencing way back in the first century. Uh, maybe, you're, maybe you're still trying to wrestle with the idea that God could exist even when you have suffering and evil in the world. Well, you relate to this passage. Uh, maybe you're in a place where you're, you're paying the price for what you believe. And we've talked about persecution the last couple of weeks. Maybe you're somewhere in between those extremes. Maybe you've realized that you believe some lies and some strange things that you really shouldn't be believing. And you need to do some course correction because your behavior is changing as a result of some false things that you're believing. But wherever you're at today, I want to pray for you. God, I thank you so much for your word, how it speaks to us through 2,000 years, and uh, how, how Jesus, your word is alive today and relevant and practical today. I pray that you would encourage people and that you would, uh, you would give people inspiration. You would motivate people to grow closer to you to grow in their convictions, to learn to discern the difference between truth and lie. But Lord, ultimately, we would discover you as alive and well, and we would build a relationship with you and a conviction of the things that we believe, not because the preacher says it or because the church said it, but because, because God, we have come to 
test and see that you are true in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The band's going to lead us in one more song, and then we will stop the feed. God bless you, everyone. Look forward to being with you again right here from Institute Biblique to Quebec in Longueuil next week. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. Praises rising, eyes are turning to you. We turn to God who saves us, 